This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right, welcome back. This is Mike Smith in for Simi today. Just checking out a little quick history of the great city of White Rock. Did you know that White Rock used to be part of Surrey? 1957. That's when White Rock incorporated as a separate city and they split away from Surrey. Why did they do that? Well, they felt their voice was not being heard, being part of Surrey. Well, maybe it's time to put them back together. The city of Surrey should amalgamate with the city of White Rock. That's what Surrey Councillor Allison Patton says, and that is our hot question of the day. Do you think the two municipalities should merge back together? Let's go the set the Wayback Machine to the 1950s and join White Rock with Surrey. You know, amalgamation is an issue that's been talked about in a lot of other parts of the Metro Vancouver over the years, too, like the city of North Vancouver and the district of North Vancouver or Port Coquitlam and Coquitlam. Maybe they should merge these cities together. Would you say, though, when it comes to White Rock and Surrey, would you say the two municipalities should merge? Would you say yes? That would be an efficient thing to do, promote efficiency, or would you say, no, keep your stinking hands off our border there in White Rock. At CKNW on Twitter, that's where you'll find the question today, and you can vote there today, and we'll tell you the, uh, update the results during the show. At CKNW on Twitter. Follow me while you are there, please, at Mike Smith News on Twitter, S-M-Y-T-H, at Mike Smith News on Twitter. I'll retweet it there, too. Call me on the buzz line in this one today and leave me a voicemail, 604 604- 331-BUZZ is the number to call, 604-331-2899. I do live in White Rock, and I'm working hard to connect White Rock to Surrey again. So that's one of my goals in my um, time here um, in City Hall, is that we come together as one again. All right, welcome back to the show. Mike Smith in for Simi. That was the voice of Surrey City Councilor Allison Patton. Now, you heard her say there that she actually lives in white rock not in surrey but you heard her idea there that one of her dreams is to amalgamate white rock and surrey put them together and create a new city she was uh, in conversation with global news reporter janet brown there she brings up an idea that gets floated from time to time remember this has come up many times in the past you get deja vu on this one it comes up a lot should Surrey and White Rock amalgamate to form one city? Well, the mayor of White Rock, Daryl Walker, saying he feeling a little blindsided by this suggestion by the Surrey City Councilor. He spoke to Simi Sarah this morning. As a matter of fact, I did not hear it until uh, your producer phoned me this morning and said, had I heard and would I come on? And the answer is I still have not heard the quote until I came on to your show now. And so, yes, where is it coming from? I've spoken a number of times with uh, Councillor Patton, a a lovely lady. She lives out this way, as do a number of other councillors and the mayor uh, of Surrey live out in this general area. And I have not heard this. this. As I said, it knocked me back. Right, because I think a lot of people who don't live in that area, because I grew up out there, uh, don't mm-hmm. realize that, yes, White Rock is, a, is separate. You've got Surrey, which is South Surrey, Crescent Beach, and all of that, but that's a separate thing. It is indeed, and I'll tell you, the people of White Rock know exactly where they live, and <laughs> where they'll the tell you every is, day, yes. are you sure you're in White Rock, or are you actually in South Surrey? <laughs> so, you know, it, it, as one of our counselors suggested, maybe we could just, uh, they'd give us South Surrey, and we'd take that off their hands, and that would work out. So well, we, we'll, we'll see what things look like. <laughs> Okay, yeah, it looks like the negotiations have begun there. The mayor of White Rock there, Daryl Walker, uh, not super thrilled about the idea of joining up with Surrey, but saying, well, maybe South Surrey, maybe you could take that off your hands. All right, if this were to happen, what would the pros and cons of this? Taxes, policing, emergency services, community development. Let's dig into this now with Grant Meyer, my guest. He spent a decade as a White Rock City Councillor. I'm very pleased to welcome to the show. Hi, Grant. 
Hey, Mike, how's it going? That's great. Uh, thanks for coming on. You know, I remember. Yeah, no problem. I remember you talking about this uh, in years past. This idea of maybe White Rock and and uh, Surrey getting together. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, there, there's obviously uh, pros and cons uh, to it. My, mine was um, again kind of having just South Surrey, um, Ocean Park, Crescent Beach. You know, have one city for the Semiamu Peninsula. Most people in those communities seem to associate with White Rock anyway. But that being said, after hearing um, Allison's comments there, I mean, there's been examples of amalgamation in other cities where cost savings haven't been realized. So, um, you know, that's preached as, oh, you're going to save money, your taxes will go down. Um, It's not all, it doesn't always happen. That being said, uh, there would be a lot for Surrey to gain in that, uh, our beautiful pier, our beautiful waterfront, and maybe Doug wouldn't have to uh, build his canal then. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) <laughs> yeah okay that's an interesting idea so <laughs> now what about you know your idea back in the day as i recall was maybe those south surrey neighborhoods you mentioned maybe those neighborhoods should join up with white rock was was that something that you proposed at one time yeah that that was kind of you know said tongue-in-cheek i mean i don't think surrey would obviously give up at some of its more desirable neighborhoods yeah. um they obviously yeah. wouldn't i know diane watts uh, gave me a bit of a ribbing about that back then. Um, okay. That being said, I, I don't think White Rock uh, residents would want to lose their voice. Um, you, you do tend to have that feeling in, in some bigger cities. I mean, right now, Newton and Guilford have lost their light rail, and, uh, you know, oh, yeah. one election can change change a lot. And the new police force that's coming in, I, I mean, I think those numbers were... Uh, are low. I, I think it's going to end up costing way more. And, um, yeah. you know, cr- crime in Surrey tends t- to be higher that we've had two homicides there in the last couple of weeks. So things like that, uh, white rock residents really appreciate their police and fire protection services, the no call too small. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think maybe if Surrey came in almost on a corporate takeover and said to the ratepayers, we'll drop your taxes 20%, guaranteed money makes people uh you know give it a second thought there but okay speaking to former white rock city councilor grant meyer grant uh just brushing up a little bit on my white rock history this morning but you probably know it better than me white rock was originally part of surrey right and then they split that's away right. in 1957 that that's correct there was uh there was a vote that was when surrey was on the ward system which um a lot of larger cities use, but uh, not here in British Columbia. And Ward 7 was what White Rock currently is now and voted to uh, leave. Uh, they felt a lot of their, their taxes were being used on the far areas outside of, of White Rock, and um, they voted to leave. And uh, I think Langley City had a similar um, event uh, also, and that's why there's Langley City and Langley Township. So, you know, it's it's interesting. Metro Vancouver's got, you know, 22 cities and, uh, you know, lots of duplication. But, you know, if there was mergers or al- amalgamations, would there be uh, savings realized? And some people say there would be and, and some people say say there wouldn't be. So okay, You sound a little pessimistic about that, that there would be savings if you amalgamated services. I mean, on the surface of it, it kind of makes sense. Yeah, I mean, uh, I go to, I went to the Metro Vancouver meetings. Even just the politicians pay, right? You're looking at 22 mayors, well over a hundred councillors for all of Metro Vancouver. Um, even just the savings there uh, could potentially be reduced. So, you know, you've got works yards, you've got rec services, police, fire, um, all those. But that being said, I don't think most politicians would vote to lose their own job. And, uh, of course, the unions um, and that kind of thing, the workers, you know, they might be, um, some of them might be let go as well if there is savings. I mean, that's how you save money, right? Yeah, you are mentioning the police services. So White Rock, you guys have an RCMP detachment in White Rock, correct? Yeah, we do. Yeah, and you were saying that the 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 motto there is no call too small. So, like, if you, what, you got a cat stuck up a tree, the RCMP comes out? I think the fire comes for cats, not okay. police. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, what would be an example of no call too small? 
you know, you get a you get a small break in. I've heard in other bigger communities, you just call and they give you a file number, and that's about it. So um, when I was on council, we we made the effort and and always let the RCMP detachments and commander know. You know, we want people out. Same with fire. We want them out. We want them there. We want people to feel that they pick up the phone and 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 they're there and they they do feel safe. And I believe. Uh, that's one of the things the residents of, of White right. Rock really value. Sure, sure. I mean, they like that. They like to be able to rely, know that if there's a break-in at their house, the police are actually going to maybe come to their house and investigate the break-in, whereas maybe in a in a tougher neighborhood with some some bigger problems in Surrey, maybe you would uh, <laughs> you probably wouldn't get a police response like that. So the people of White Rock like that personal service there, I imagine. Yeah, they do. Yeah, that's what sure. I've found over the years. Yeah, so they wouldn't want to. I'm sure they wouldn't want to give that up. But what about what about fire services? I mean, haven't there been incidents in the past where there might be a fire in, say, White Rock, and you need the Surrey Fire Department to come out and oh, come over and help out? Yeah, we we have a mutual agreement um, with Surrey, and uh, obviously they've got uh, a lot of fire departments and quite a few in the South Surrey Crescent Beach area and, and Morgan Heights area. Um, and yes, they have come and helped us and, and we'd be willing to help them if needed our police and fire as well. Obviously, um, they're a lot bigger and would probably, uh, rarely need us to come help and we're a lot smaller. So more probability of it going the other way. But that being said, um, I don't know about this new police force and a lot of people in South Surrey that are friends and I've lived on both sides of the border over the years, uh, are really apprehensive about the police service. About the new municipal police service coming to Surrey, yeah, that's right. Why they think it's going to be more expensive than what the mayor, Mayor Doug McCallum, is saying? Yeah, they they do, and they you yeah. know you look at the numbers of officers per capita, and uh, yeah. you know Surrey's so far behind Vancouver, but they're they're catching up in population quickly, and and it seems the report was just done so that it hit that ten percent in uh, target that they wanted. Okay, you what know, do you th- plug in the numbers and get what you want? What do you think the chances are of something like this actually happening, Surrey and White Rock amalgamating? It, it seems to me the politics of this would be just too high a bar to overcome. What are your thoughts? Uh, I would say it's it's highly unlikely. I, I think in other cities, I've talked to councillors across the country at FCM, and when they've amalgamated in Halifax, Winnipeg, and different cities in Ontario, and it it seems to have to come from the province or, or right from the people. You know, people of White Rock have to get upset that my taxes are way higher than my neighbor who lives across the the road and um that's how i think it would a a grassroots thing not uh not the local politicians i mean right now city of white rock's going to a lawsuit next week um trying to overturn a development we passed last year uh you know if that ends up costing the city millions maybe maybe the people start getting mad Rand, thanks for coming on today Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it a lot. That is Grant Meyer. He's the former longtime city councillor in White Rock uh, talking about this idea floated by uh, a Surrey city councillor that the two communities should merge into a single city. Imagine buying a lottery ticket and winning the big one, $60 million, the biggest lotto jackpot in BC history, won by a retired Richmond fisherman this week. Imagine if that happened to you. How incredible would that be? Well, if that did happen, who are you going to call? Who's the first person you're going to call? Well, maybe you tell your loved ones that you hit the big one, but maybe the next guy you call is my next guest. He's an Edmonton lawyer who specializes in advising lottery winners. He's known as Canada's jackpot lawyer. Gregory Pang joins me. Hey, Gregory. Hi, Mike. How are you? Great. Thanks a lot for coming on. That's an interesting uh, line of work you've got there advising lottery winners. That's very interesting. If someone comes to you and they've they've won the big one, what should be the first thing they should do? What do you tell them to do for job one? Well, there are many things that they should do, but the first thing, I think the first and foremost, that they should keep the winning ticket safe. You know, they're so many times that I've received calls and emails over the last several months with people telling me that, oh, they think they might have bought that winning ticket for $10 million, $20 million, but they put it in their pants and they put it in the wash. So, number one, keep that ticket safe. 
Yeah, because that's almost like a bearer bond, isn't it? Like if someone finds that ticket and you haven't signed it or anything like that, I mean, it's kind of finders keepers, isn't it? If someone finds that ticket, they could cash it in. Well, yeah, pretty much. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the BC Lottery Corporation, including the other lottery regulars, they do publish a lot of other tips for keeping it safe, like specific tips. Um, too many to go into for this uh, talk today, but yeah, it's it's just so important for you to, as a winner, if you believe that you're the winner, to make sure that that doesn't fall into hands that you don't want that ticket to fall into. Okay, so maybe put it in a safety deposit box or something? Something like that, yeah, exactly. Okay, what should you do? Let's say you win the big one. Probably the first thing that's going through your mind is, well, when you talk to people who've won a big lottery prize, how do they describe it to you? Like, what happens to what's going through their mind and their bodies? Is it like an electric jolt going through their body? What what's is there any kind of common common thread of the reactions that people experience? I've had people that are either just really really happy. And they just need to get some kind of legal advice because they have some kind of personal situation that they need to, uh, they need to, for which they need to seek advice before they go claim their ticket. And I've had calls where people where they are very nervous because they have, say, this personal situation, this professional situation, or perhaps a legal situation. Where they say, this could complicate things, and uh, I need to talk to someone about what I should do. So the the reaction varies, um, and, and depending on the person's circumstances. Okay, how about telling other people? I mean, obviously, you might be very tempted to well tell your immediate family, tell your loved ones. But what would you advise people to do? Would you advise them against sort of keeping it secret for a while? I'd say I would not advise against keeping it secret, but I would say that with respect to who to tell, that you should make a plan before you claim. You know, one of the part of those plans is that really think about who you want to tell that you have this winning ticket. You know, really think about who you want to know about this. And you may want to, or at least make a plan to, but talk to a financial advisor or wealth manager prior to claiming. And, yeah, because I, you know, as I mentioned, go ahead. Well, I was just thinking, like, let's say, like, this guy won the sixty million. If you start blabbing that mm-hmm. all over the neighborhood, aren't you maybe asking for trouble? I mean, people can start coming out of the woodwork. Not only friends and relatives looking to cash in or whatever, but you know, con men, grifters, you know, people trying to scam you. Oh, absolutely, Mike, and that's a really good question, and that's one of the, not only before you claim, but after you claim, those things that you mentioned could happen, right? So if, and unfortunately, after you claim, then it's public, and those kinds of people will come out of the woodwork, like you mentioned, you know, long-lost family members and friends who are not really friends, but now they're your best friend because they want money and charity, perhaps legitimate charities, and like you said, maybe con men or scammers that might uh, come after you, and and therefore, the the reason for not telling everyone, like you said, you know, in the neighborhood before you claim, are for those reasons. So really think about who you want to tell, and you might not want to get on that megaphone and announce to everyone that you've won, like like they, you see in the commercials, right? You know, you're calling your boss, calling your friends, and saying, "I'm not coming in, and uh, I'm going to go claim my prize." Well, think twice about that before you get on that megaphone. Okay, speaking to Gregory Pang, he's the Canada's jackpot lawyer. He advises big lottery winners on uh, what to do with their money. What about, um, let's say you want to give some of the money away. Like, let's say you want to give money to family, friends, or whatever. Is, is there any kind of legalities around that? Like, do people have to pay tax? Do people have to pay taxes on lottery wins, or is that tax-free in Canada? In Canada, it is tax-free, and that information is available um, on the uh, BC Lottery Corporation's website, I believe, and uh, other lottery reg- regulators. So that is if you do not take it as an annuity payout. So wow. annuity payouts do have, uh, they, they do get, I believe, uh, um, they are deemed as income. Right. But generally in Canada, they are tax-free. What if you um, give it, what if you give money to somebody else? Like, what if you say to your, free, you know, your best friend or... Uh, family members, here's a million bucks or something. Do they have to pay taxes on that? Well, I'm uh, just uh, uh, as a 
disclaimer, I'm not a, a tax expert, but what I know of tax law is that that would be considered a gift. If it's indeed a gift that I'm giving it to my son, I'm giving it to my best friend, a million dollars, two million dollars, then it's a gift, it's a windfall, that's not taxable. Now, if it's like, okay, hey, come work on my boat with me, and I'll, and I'll pay you for it, um, it, it, there maybe CRA might say, well, no, we think that's mm. income because you're you're being paid because you're you're an actual contractor who does painting of boats or or something of the like, and he did pay you for this, even though it's way above market, like way way above market. But it's going to be deemed as income, so we're going to tax you at that highest taxable rate. Okay, what if uh, you win the lottery, you win the big one, but you don't want anyone to know at all. You just want to remain anonymous. Is that allowed? I know that kind of varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, isn't it? Doesn't it? In Canada, the general rule, and with our national lotteries, the big ones being, of course, Lotto Max, the subject of the latest winning in BC, or the 649, it's generally not allowed. So the starting point is that the lottery corp- corporations state that they have a right if you want to claim your money, if you want them to pay you those big winnings, they have a right to publish the winner's name, city, or town of residence, and a recent photo of you. So that's their starting point. Now, there is a very narrow exception that they don't actually, I believe, publish on their websites, but it's a, you can read about it on some news stories of a few people who have been able to do it successfully, is that if there is a so-called legitimate threat or extraordinary circumstances, where there is some kind of safety issue. And in those very narrow circumstances, the lottery corporation may allow the individual to claim anonymously. So one of the uh, two of the examples that I've read about is that, let's say, if you're a prison guard or you're undercover police officer, there is a legitimate threat to the individuals, like physical safety and or their family and friends. Okay, interesting. Is there but, anything? But again, this is very narrow. Right. Mm-hmm. Is there anything bad about winning the lottery? I mean, this is the dream of a lot of people. But uh, you've advised a lot of people over the years. Have you ever seen a situation where winning the lottery is actually a bad thing for someone, or it turns out badly? Well, for the people I've uh, advised, um, clients I've advised about the lottery, I uh, they haven't come back and told me that there's been something particularly bad, but you only have to go far as far as making a Google search about lottery win nightmares. You know, the classic example is someone spending all their money all at once, you know, and these are people that don't have a plan. Uh, and uh, I think there was a recent example of someone in, in Ontario doing that, winning $10 million and then essentially now working, uh, living paycheck, paycheck to paycheck at a part-time job. Right. And... You know, like like you mentioned, and that there's the other bad thing that can happen um, would be all those people. Now you don't know who's your friend. Now you don't know who's legitimately being nice to you, or or uh, um, a good family member, or are they just waiting to ask for money? So it could destroy relationships. And I, I do have actually a quote here that I think would get the point across is okay. from a, an American lottery winner though, uh, who won a really big jackpot um, in the United States. And I quote that he says here, I think if you have something, there's always someone else that wants it. I wish I'd torn that ticket up, unquote. Oh. And this guy won $315 million. I mean, that's really next level kind of win. We don't have <laughs> those kind of jackpots in Canada, but that would be, that would be insane. Like, who would know what to, know what to do with $315 million? I'd love to have that kind of problem, actually. It'd be <laughs> kind of interesting. <laughs> I might have to call you for some advice, though. Hey, Greg, thanks a lot for coming on the show today to talk about this. No problem. It's been a pleasure, Mike. All right, that's Gregory Pang. He's an Edmonton lawyer. He calls himself the jackpot lawyer. He advises uh, lottery winners. So there you go. There's your legal advice. It is time to check in with Karen McSherry, cooking with Karen, founder and president hey. of the Gourmet Warehouse. Hi, Karen. Hi, Mike. It's nice to talk to you again. It's great to talk to you, too, again, to, uh, as well, Karen. So right now, it's peak time for corn on the cob in the Fraser Valley. Oh, nothing better than fresh-picked corn on the cob. I know, right? But mm. there's so many interesting things about corn. Um it, Years ago, we used to, we'd always say, it's Chilliwack corn. Chilliwack corn is here, right? Chilliwack corn is not a variety. It's a place where they grow really good corn, but it is not a variety. And I know I grew up with it's Chilliwack corn because this is now when it pops into season. So that variety of corn will 
grow just as well in Abbotsford or Langley or in your backyard if you've got that strain. Um, right now, like years ago, Jubilee was the was the strain of corn that they grew, and it was the all yellow cob, and and it was a hit or miss. It was either it was super sweet, and you you were just wanted to eat three cobs or two bites, and you're kind of going, uh, this is kind of starchy and not so sweet. So Jubilee is gone, and all these hybrids keep you know being grown and 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 blended and and better. And now we know something called peaches and cream but it's not really the variety it's just because we've given it that name because it's yellow and and white so it kind of and so so sweet um the super sweet is germinated it germinates better in really cool temperatures and and we do have cool temperatures so that's why we grow such great corn here um but there are over a hundred varieties that exist wow and yeah who knew that hey Mm. And so I, I've given um, you and our, our listeners a great recipe um, because you're never going to look at a can of cream corn again when I tell you how to do this. Okay. So it's really, you're going to just um, cook. A two, I'm going to give you, so there's enough for you and your boys and your wife to eat. Two okay. cups of corn, yeah. and you're just going to cook it in boiling water for maybe five minutes or so. And then you let it cool so that you can handle it and then cut all the kernels off the cob. And then you're going to put that into a small saucepan. You're going to add two tablespoons of butter and some milk. If you really like it rich, which we don't really want it rich, you can go full and put in cream. And then you're just going to take half of it and puree it. You're going to cook that out and then puree it. A little bit of salt and you've got the best, sweetest tasting cream corn you will ever have. And you can freeze that. So you buy the corn at your market when it's... an and bulk up, make this, and freeze it. And then all the listeners are kind of going, well, really, that's it? So now we're going to take that base recipe, and now we're going to add half a cup of flour, a beaten egg, a half a cup of grated Parmesan cheese, some Mm. fresh basil or chives, Mm. mix that up with that base of the cream corn, because it's still got the chunks of corn, and heat up a nonstick fry pan with a little bit of oil and make yourself some corn cakes. Oh. Mm. Now we're talking, right? Oh, now yeah. that's super delicious. And if you want to take it just that little step higher, mm. you could add a grilled scallop or a little prawn on top. Oh, wow. Who knew? So, I mean, that sounds that knew? sounds terrific. That sounds awesome. Okay, let me ask you a few basic kind of corn one hundred and one questions here, Karen. Okay. okay, so if you're if you're shopping for corn in the cob in the supermarket or elsewhere, how do you go about selecting the best the best ones? Okay, so you want to make sure you the supermarket doesn't, and, and we do it, and I'm guilty, and I know you're guilty too. You always want to peel back that top to make sure that the corn grew to the end. You don't want to get home and get a, get skunked, right? Right. So you peel back a little bit, but you can feel the cob if it's firm to the top. Okay. The silk at the end doesn't want to be really old and brown. The, mm. the brighter and cleaner and fresher the silk is that indicates that the cob had just been picked within a day or two right right when when that silk is really old indicates that 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 corn was picked uh, a week ago okay how about if you're boiling up some corn in the cob uh we had this discussion in our house just last week we had some corn in the cob and we're there's a little dispute about how long you're supposed to boil it and i didn't really know how long you're supposed to boil corn in the cob i would i would say five to six minutes because you still want it firm it's like when we talk about cooking your vegetables al dente you don't want to you know we don't do the what we did 40 years ago where we just cooked everything till it was just mush corn is the same you still want it al dente you could pry a few little kernels out now if the kernels are larger cook it eight minutes eight to ten but if they're tiny then a little bit less okay put some salt in the water oh yeah salt in the water and then you know be creative you could take your butter and put in a little bit of lime zest and lime juice and and chili and make a chili lime butter instead of just same old same old Okay, would you say boiling corn in the cob is like the the best way to go? I mean, other people you can you can grill it on the barbecue too, can you? Oh, I love it grilled. Okay. And here's the thing, and I know that all the all the magazines, the Bon Appetit's and the Food and Wines, what they feature on their covers are these beautiful, you know, 
um, cobs of corn that are grilled in the husks, and then yeah. they peel it back beautifully. They tie it with a little bit of a, a chive leaf, and it looks stunning. And you know what? That looks great in the picture, but in reality, to try to get that those hot husks off the corn yeah. so that you it, 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 it makes no sense. I've done it. I've burnt my hands. Take your corn, peel it, take everything off, make sure that the silk is all gone because it burns easily. Brush it with a little bit of olive oil and it put it on medium low, medium low for a good 30 minutes on your barbecue, turning, turning, turning. And you want those kernels to be kind of charred and then it's good to go to roll in whatever butter you want. Okay, I remember one time I think I tried barbecuing corn in the cob with the husk on, like you described, and I remember later it was so messy and it's so messy. Ah, I just and like I'm have, never doing this again. Okay. And plus, Mike, you have to soak that in water for oh. about twenty minutes before you even do that. So strip it off, clean it, throw it on the barbecue, and you can manage that better. You can pile it high on your platter. And, and and it's really easy. Okay. How about microwave? Is that sacrilege? Would you ever do such yeah, a thing? Yeah, I would I would never. That's we're not doing that. You you no. take all the goodness out. But you know what? For all the of you that are always running and in a rush and you just want it, that works. It does work. Of course it works. That's why they're there. Here's a little tidbit of information which is sort of like really? Yeah. So the silk at the end of the cob. Yeah indicates if you were to take the silks and count each one of them, each one of those silks represent how many kernels are on that cob. No. Wild, right? Really? Yeah. Straight from the farmers. Yeah. You mean like each individual? Yeah. And that's how they germinate. That's how many kernels will be on your cob is how many strands of the silk is at the end of that cob oh okay so like each individual kernel sprouts a a, a silk yeah thread oh. exactly Who knew? cool hey that is very Who interesting knew? how yeah, about trivial. storing uh if you buy some corn in the cob you don't eat it all because because it, it store well it stores well i store yeah. mine in the husk i don't peel it i keep it in the husk and i store it um in 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 the crisper part you don't want it stone cold and buy what you need it doesn't want it because as it stores the sugar's manipulate and it it doesn't it's not as sweet you don't want those internal start sugars to compound you want them to be fresh picked because that's where they're the most succulent and then that's why if you have excess you make the cream corn because it's so sweet yeah okay you don't want to store it for a long time you want to eat it as quick as possible no no you want to swing by those farmers markets because that produce comes in every other day and that's when you want it that's where you get it don't don't buy and look at the end look at the silk make sure it's not really dark brown and sort of sad right, you want right. it bright and clean okay how about if you boil up a bunch of corn in the cob and you and they don't all get eaten can you take the the cooked corn in the cob and put it in the fridge and eat it the next day absolutely i, w- okay. I would t- i would no i wouldn't eat it off the cob doesn't get eaten and that happens a lot because you over you know you, you kind of mismanage how many cobs people will eat strip it down take your knife strip it down take all the kernels off put it in a freezer bag and freeze it because you probably won't want that the next day you're still eating fresh it's still summer and and then freeze it and then you know what i do i'll throw it into chili if i'm doing a pot of chili i'll take that corn and i'll go one step further i'll throw it into a cast iron pan and char it and then i'll throw it into the chili or you could put it with mashed potatoes and make a mashed potato corn cake okay and you also anticipated my next question that's freezing it can you freeze the corn yes okay cooked or cooked or raw can you can you cook can you freeze it raw yeah you can okay both yeah easily yeah don't it it won't it won't want to be there in a year from now but up to three months it will be fine Okay, and where's the best place to get the best, the best freshest corn in the cob? You want to go to like a farmer's market or right out to the farm I gate? I do. Right? The, yeah, the, ro- the, the farm gate, roadside stands, because these yeah. guys are always at the farm. So every two days, their, their produce is replenished. They're coming in. So those are the best. And plus, you're helping a local guy, you know, stay alive. He's running to the farms. He's bringing it into the city. Support them. 
and make sure that when you buy the corn, it's BC corn. There's no other alternative. Absolutely. Buy local. Love it. All right, Karen, you got me fired up for corn on the cob. I think I'm going to have a barbecue this weekend. I know you are. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Thank you, Karen. Thanks, Mike. All right. That's Karen McSherry. She is the founder and president of the Gourmet Warehouse, which is an awesome store, by the way. Thanks to Karen. Let's get an update on the Andrew Berry trial now. That's the man accused of murdering his two young daughters in his home in Oak Bay in suburban Victoria there on Christmas Day 2017. He has uh, told the court that he bl- someone broke into his apartment and stabbed him. He has pleaded not guilty. He has continued his tearful testimony in B.C. Supreme Court. He recalled the moments he was taken to hospital after he realized his daughters were dead. And when asked if he tried to commit suicide that day, he said, no, that's all wrong. The testimony has continued with photo evidence of the crime scene, which you can imagine, uh, a very emotional scene, a lot of people turning away and in tears in the courtroom. The defense has said that he was in debt to loan sharks, perhaps suggesting that loan sharks were to blame for the deaths of his daughters. Let's check in with Global News reporter Aaron Eubels now has been covering this very emotional trial. Hi, Aaron. Hi, Mike. Hi, Aaron. Uh, Yeah, tensions. Go ahead, Aaron. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, uh, yeah, just outside BC Supreme Court right now with uh, tension certainly high. Crown Counsel hammering Andrew Barry uh, right this minute. Very seemingly emotional with that. Yesterday we heard that Barry testified uh, Christmas Day morning. Anything but unusual for, for the family. They had breakfast, they opened stockings, took two trips to go tobogganing. But when they returned back to the apartment around 3.30 p.m. on Christmas Day 2017, that's where things became interesting. He says that's when he was stabbed in the neck inside his apartment. When he came to, he realized his daughters were both dead. Today, now Crown Counsel asking him about the crime scene on Christmas Day inside his Oak Bay apartment. Footprints were found in the living room with Crown Counsel asking if they could in fact be Andrew Barry's. He replied, I'm not sure. I don't think I made it that far. When he was asked about the blood that was scattered around his apartment, Barry says he's not sure if it was anybody else's but his. He claims he was attacked twice in his apartment. He tried to grab a knife for self-defense, but he blacked out again. And that's when he realized his two daughters were dead. But no, the interesting thing here is that no DNA swabs of his apartment actually show a fourth person of being in that apartment. Uh, those are blood swabs, I should uh, indicate. Uh, they only linked to Barry, Aubrey, and Chloe. He's also claiming that he had a gambling problem, as you, as you mentioned, and that uh, loan sharks are most likely responsible for this attack. But that dramatic testimony continuing right now uh, between the defense lawyer and Crown, things are getting a little heated. What an incredible trial, Aaron. It's so unusual in many ways to see uh, someone accused of murder take the take the stand in their own defense. What has this guy's demeanor been like on the on the witness stand, Andrew Barry, there as, as he was testifying? You know, surprisingly, uh, I've only been covering this story for a couple of days, but he is quite emotional. Uh, he's showing that he does, in fact, have feelings. Um, they have been showing photos of the crime scene. Uh, he had to point out a few things on there. He, he was turning away, couldn't even look at the photos because he was so distraught with it. Um, but for the most part, he's just sitting there a little rigid, um, just kind of shutting down a little at the moment. I can't, can't think of anything much more disturbing than having to look at crime scenes when the victims in this case are so young, these two young children. What, what was the mood like or the atmosphere like in the courtroom as they had to look at some of these photos? It, it was it was very disturbing. As I mentioned, yeah. Barry, but he was uh, a little uncomfortable there uh, looking at the photos and pointing things out. But the, the people sitting in the courtroom, you could see family members, people who knew these little girls uh, turning away, putting their heads on the shoulders of the person next to them, holding each other's hands. And uh, the majority of the people in the courtroom were looking away. I'd say about probably about 50 percent or so. Okay, for a lot of the people following this trial, Aaron, a lot of people are wondering, like, well, okay, is this guy's, does the story that he's telling make any sense at all? You mentioned that 
there was no DNA evidence found at the scene of a fourth person or a potential intruder there, right? Does that does that seem like that could be key evidence? It does. And uh, I was chatting with another one of our uh, global reporters here. Um, we were sort of talking about that. And uh, we haven't really, it's not really DNA uh specific it's dna swabs of blood so blood specific mm. is what they haven't found there's three people's blood that have been found in the apartment uh fourth person's blood has not been found but barry indicates that a person broke into his apartment uh and he tried to attack him now whether that person was actually there or whether that person was actually stabbed uh that remains to be seen aaron i'll let you get back to covering this trial thanks for taking the time yeah, no problem. Thanks very much. Okay, that's Aaron Ubell's Global News reporter outside of BC Supreme Court today. Let's talk about that dramatic raid that took place Monday morning at Hastings Park Racetrack. That was the day that officials from the Canada Border Services Agency descended on the racetrack and arrested a number of grooms. These are the guys who work in the back stretch of the track. Uh, mucking out stalls for horses, washing down the horses. They work hard down there. A lot of them are from Mexico. These border officials show up and arrest a bunch of these guys and lead them away in handcuffs. What is the story behind that? Well, now we're taking some finding out more about what this is about, and it's taken some f- incredible twists and turns here. A hearing, an immigration and refugee board hearing heard yes uh, earlier this week that there was possibly a rogue agent at the B.C. Gaming Policy and Enforcement Branch. This is the branch of the government that regulates gambling in B.C. If you need to work, if you're going to work at Hastings Park Racetrack in the backstretch, you have to be licensed by this branch. How did these workers get a license? Now that turns out there's an investigation into whether a rogue agent had been selling licenses to these workers uh, improperly at Hastings Park Racetrack. Let's talk about this now with my guest, David Milburn. He's the president of the Horsemen's Benevolent and Protective Association. They represent horse racing in B.C. David, welcome back to the program. Thank you very much. Good to be back, Mike. David, when I spoke to you earlier this week about this uh, story, one of the first things you said to me was, look, you know, you can't work at Hastings Park Racetrack there with the horses unless you've got a license from the gaming policy and enforcement branch. And immediately the question is, well, if these guys are in the country illegally, how did they get a license? Now it turns out there's an investigation going on into whether a rogue agent at the branch had been selling these licenses what are your thoughts about these revelations okay i just want to correct you on one thing mike you use the words in the country illegally it's uh, our understanding that the foreign workers the migrant workers were legally in the country not illegally they were legally here they were here as visitors they were here on student visas but they were allowed to be in canada okay okay what they weren't allowed to do was to work without a work permit. Right, right. And to be a groom at Hastings Park, you have to have a work permit. And ordinarily, you'd go, you'd uh, produce your credentials showing that you can work in Canada if you're a foreign national, that you can work in Canada, and then they will check it out and give you a license. And what happened in this case is under investigation we don't know we don't have all the facts right uh, what we're learning is that uh, one of the agents for gpeb that's gaming policy enforcement branch that's the provincial guys one of their people was of uh, the allegations are he was taking money from migrant prospective migrant workers and advising that it was to be used for the lawyer quotes the lawyer to be used to get the paperwork in order and then they could work so it wasn't a selling of the license so to speak i don't think those are the allegations the allegations are that uh, he was going to uh, get the lawyer take the money get the lawyer and they'd get the license and they did get the license groom's licenses one of the amazing things about 
about this story to me, David, and I know it concerns you greatly as well, and that is the timing of how this all unfolded. The the BC Ministry of the Attorney General has said that an investigation into this started last October, so way back into last fall, and yet some of these workers at Hastings Park Racetrack received a license since then, right? So there was an investigation going on at the same time these licenses were being handed out. Is that is that your understanding of it? That's my understanding. And the ministry themselves say the investigation started October of last year, October 2018. Right. Many of the migrant workers got their licenses spring, April, May, as late as June. The individual that got a license in June, that was a full nine months after the investigation started. So my question is, at what stage did they know that these were phony licenses that were being handed out? When did they know that? And we need some answers on that. We're missing facts here. What has happened to, to these people, these, uh, these migrant workers who were arrested on Monday? What, what has happened to them, to your knowledge? They're all out of custody now, I understand. And I understand that uh, many have agreed to go back to Mexico and will be going back to Mexico in the next short while. And again, it's my understanding that these are people who were allowed to be in Canada. Where the offense was committed was they weren't allowed to work while they were in Canada. Right. And it's my further understanding that migrant workers believe that the paperwork then was in order by the agent, the government agent, put the paperwork in order, and they were allowed to work. And it was the act of working as a groom that committed the offense under the Immigration Act, and that's why they were taken into custody. And on the subject of taken into custody, why did the feds have to come in, swarm the place, arrest people, march these individuals without criminal records, because they wouldn't be here in Canada if they had criminal records, right? Without criminal records, up and down, in, in some cases in front of co-workers, and take them into custody in a very aggressive manner, just like, just like they were taking down a gang. Why did that have to happen? Why couldn't the licensing authority, GPEB, simply call the individuals up to the office and said, look, I know you got the license from us. I know you got this groom's license. You're allowed to work as a groom, you think, but the license is invalid. So I'll take your license back, and this uh, agent will escort you out the gates. If you get the correct paperwork, you're welcome to come back. But right now, you can't work here. Why Why didn't that happen? Why did it have to be a raid? What was the mood down? I know you were down there at, uh, at the racetrack on Monday morning. What was it like down there? What was the mood? What, what was the reaction of people when all this went down? Um, the reaction of people was, as you would expect, they were shocked. Absolutely shocked that this was occurring. Uh, just one second, uh, Michael. Okay, standing by for David Milburn there. He is a... Are you back, David? I'm back. I'm back. Yeah. Sorry about that. Yeah, that's okay. You, you were talking. Okay, can you continue talking, David? I can continue talking, yeah. All right, okay. You were talking about what it was like down there on Monday. Well, it was uh, shocking. You see, uh, the estimates were 25 to 40 people. They were easy to determine who they were. They were all dressed in black, black uniforms. Uh, Many had jackets on, black jackets with the initials of their organization, whether it's GPEB or or, um, the feds, the border agency, CBSA. And it's the CBSA that were doing the uh, heavy lifting and the tough work and the aggressive uh, behavior came from them. The uh, GPEB people were, were... basically standing back they were polite they um they were all right it was the fed so we're coming on heavy very heavy down on the ground arrest march out to the vehicles into custody and into detention and many of them stayed in detention for for a little over 48 hours until they were released at the immigration hearing 
Speaking to David Milburn from the BC Horsemen's Benevolent and Protective Association about about the raids on Monday at Hastings Park Racetrack. David, what do you think should happen now? What are the next steps here? Well, that we get to the bottom of it. Yeah. We find out who knew what, when. And I'm sure more facts will come forward as the days and weeks progress. Uh, right now, we don't have all the facts. Uh, what we do have, the facts that we do have right now, indicate that this is a very disturbing matter. Thanks for coming on today. Appreciate it. Thank I you, Mike. I appreciate it. Thank you. That is David Milburn. He is a lawyer. He is a owner-trainer of racehorses down at Hastings Park. He's the president of the Horsemen's Association. Right, let's talk about the wildfires in the Amazon now. The forest fires in the Amazon rainforest continue to burn at an alarming rate. As of Thursday, reports there say more than 165,000 fires burning in the Amazon, which is home to roughly 40,000 plant species, 1,300 bird species, 2.5 million species of insects. There's regularly wildfires in the Amazon, but this year especially bad cknw contributor claire allen spoke to ruth defries professor of ecology in the earth institute at columbia university in new york about the amazon rainforest and what started these devastating wildfires uh, the fires in the amazon and any humid tropical uh, forest around the world uh, is set by humans in one way or another. It's a very different situation than the fires that we have in the North American West, where you are. Mm -hmm. uh, those are systems that are uh, where fire is a natural feature set by lightning. In the humid tropics, that's not the case at all. Fire is not a natural feature. When we see fires, it's because humans are setting them. Drier conditions certainly exacerbate the fires, make them burn more, make them escape into surrounding areas. But uh, fires that we're seeing in the Amazon and anywhere in the humid tropics is very much related to uh, humans using fire. And fire is a very common uh, management tool throughout the tropics for clearing land and, uh, and managing, uh, managing land. Brazilian President Bolsonaro has been accused of lying when it comes to his climate goals. Professor DeFries, can you elaborate on some of those accusations against the president of Brazil and how they relate to the forest fires? Well, Brazil uh, had very high rates of deforestation in the early 2000s and uh, subsequently was admirable world leader in putting in place policies that reduced the deforestation, and it was very successful. What we're seeing now is a, a reversal uh, in that very good example that they were for the world about how it is possible to reduce deforestation while being an economic uh, leader. Part of the way to, to carry out those policies is to be able to know how much deforestation is happening and be able to see the fires and monitor. And Brazil has had a very well-established, very well-regarded uh, monitoring system to track their, track their deforestation that's carried out by the Brazilian Space Agency. And uh, the Brazilian president has... Um, followed the playbook that we're seeing in other places around the world uh, of ignoring evidence and and uh, firing the, the messenger, the head of the, uh, the Brazilian Space Agency. Wow, that's really alarming. And I know that people around the world have started to see the images of the the fire in the Amazon. And I mean, those images have been shared on social media, whether it be Twitter, Instagram, and people are quite alarmed at the obviously the fires and the response from the Brazilian president or lack of response. And so I'm wondering, is there any attempt to stop these forest fires? I saw that today the president of Brazil said he's going to send in the army. But I mean, 
have there been any real attempts to to at least contain or stop the the fires? Well, the reasons why the fires are increasing now is because the enforcement of existing Brazilian laws uh, has been lax, and and the president has made it very clear that uh, that uh, it's kind of open season on the uh, on the Amazon. Uh, for development purposes. How much of the Amazon rainforest can we stand to lose from these fires? And what will the impact be if we lose too much, if the forest fires destroy too much of the Amazon rainforest? Yeah, well, it's hard to know exactly how much would, uh, that there's a precise amount that after we lose that, uh, it's, it's over. Uh, I don't think I could I could uh, make that kind of estimate, but there are many different kinds of uh, impacts from deforestation and the fires that are occurring in the Amazon from local local to global. So local locally within Brazil and neighboring countries, the smoke that blows off of the fires uh, is transported to uh, to people downwind, and they are suffering from poor air quality. That's going on right now. In, uh, in Sao Paulo. Uh, at a more global scale, the, the, the trees contain, the trees in the soil contain a lot of carbon. There are banks of carbon and they're absorbing carbon from the atmosphere and storing it. And that's a great service that those trees are doing for us because it's keeping that carbon, which would otherwise be in the atmosphere and be greenhouse gas and warming our planet and exacerbating uh, the climate change that we're already seeing around the world. So uh, the Amazon also cycles water and creates rainfall through the moisture that the, the trees take up through their roots. So uh, it's a, it's um, the forest provides a lot of important services for us. People around the globe are very distressed by the images of the forest fires in the Amazon. What can people do to help when they see these images? How can they make an impact? Well, I think the most important thing we do is have leaders who um, who are evidence-based and take account of the information that their own scientists in their country are are telling them. Uh, I know that's a tall order now around the world, uh, but that's probably the most important thing people can do. Uh, when there was the successful reduction in deforestation in the early 2000s, uh, it was a combined effort of environmental groups, companies, multinational companies who were uh, were looking at cleaning up their supply chains so that they were not using products that were produced from deforested land. They have their international reputation at stake. And the Brazilian government, who was uh, very effective at putting these policies in place. So what individuals can do, you know, support the, the leaders that will make evidence-based decisions, support the companies that take their supply chains seriously. Professor DeFries, thank you so much for telling me about this important story. Okay, thank you very Wonderful. much. All right, that is Ruth DeFries. She's a, an ecology professor at Columbia University in New York in conversation with our Claire Allen talking about the wildfires in South America. I don't think the people of White Rock would give up their autonomy just to be part of a larger, I don't know, community where they probably would have considerably less say in what happens in their community. All right, welcome back. Mike Smith in for Simi. That is the voice of Daryl Walker. He is the mayor of White Rock commenting on the idea of amalgamating the two cities. Should White Rock and Surrey do a team up and form a new city? Let's check in now with Surrey City Councillor Allison Patton. Councillor, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Okay, Councillor, you're the one who kind of got this, this ball rolling here with this uh, story with your idea that maybe this would be a good idea. Tell me about your thoughts on that. Why do you think the joining Surrey and White Rock might be a smart move? Well, um, I've, um, I've been a business owner in South Surrey for about almost 20 years, and um, I've lived in Cloverdale, Crescent Beach, White Rock, and uh, I just had this feeling last fall that the timing was right for a uh, us to start considering that okay, and why the reason you, being yeah. yeah the reason being is that um and and it's been and i i just sort of once i had that idea back in the fall um 
I just set it aside because, uh, you know, I have a lot of ideas. And But then since I've been involved with the city um, as a counselor, and um, one of my portfolios is economic development, I've just seen how many exciting things are happening in Surrey in terms of our, um, you know, movement in terms of business in Surrey. And I just think that... Uh, it would be really great if we can work together on some of those fronts between White Rock and Surrey. So I just think from that point of view alone, uh, it's the timing seems right for us to start to collaborate and for, to bring White Rock back into Surrey. Okay. Do you think there could be some efficiencies or savings if the two cities amalgamated and shared services? Well, that's, that's definitely what most people... Um, I've received a number of emails now since that, uh, I guess, came to light. I guess it was earlier today. So um, that's their, the people who have been emailing me, that's their main um, comments is around the efficiency. So uh, I would definitely say there would be. And one of the people speaking to me had worked in the city of White Rock for a number of years and mentioned to me just some of the details around how efficient that, that could be. Okay, what kind of services do you think could be combined where you can maybe make it more efficient, maybe save money? Well, one of the things that the people talk a lot about are, is to do with our, um, let's say in White Rock, is to do with the garbage and the recycling. And one of the things that Surrey prides itself on is its proactive approach to things like recycling and uh, garbage. And so I just think something like that could be, you know, White Rock could benefit from the um, advancements that Surrey ha- ha- um, experiences and, and the people of Surrey love the way um, garbage is handled and recycling matters like that. Okay, uh, we've also got, of course, got the situation with the police. Uh, the White yes. Rock White Rock has an RCMP detachment, so does Surrey, yes. but yes. this week, of course, we've seen how the provincial government has given the green light to the city of Surrey to transition to a local municipal police force. How would you see that working out if if the two cities merged? Right. Well, I mean, the nice thing would be that uh, if if White Rock uh, became part of Surrey, then that, then White Rock could benefit from our brand new municipal uh, police service, which is, I think, a, a positive, a huge positive for White Rock. Why do you think that would be a positive? Because I I understand that a lot of people live in White Rock are very happy with the service they get from the RCMP right now. Um, well, I think that, um, you know, the, the nice thing that's happening with uh, the new police service that's coming is that we're we're able to create, as, as many people, why, why many people like to start to build in Surrey and create things in Surrey is because they get to do it right. They get to start fresh. They get to bring the innovation um, of a lot of the advancements in different areas. So in terms of policing, I think that we're going to get the benefit of that. And uh, why shouldn't White Rock? Okay, you, I'm speaking to Surrey City Councillor Allison Patton. Councillor, you live, you live in White Rock, right? Yes, I do. Okay, so you're a Surrey Councillor, but you live in White Rock. Uh, I mean, are you happy with the police service in, in White Rock right now from the RCMP? Well, I mean, mainly I can comment only on the um, experiences I've had with my business in Surrey because that's where I've had the most interface with the RCMP. And so, um, as I mentioned yesterday when I was asked the same question, uh, it's it's a combination and it links to responsiveness. And um, it's been my own personal business experience and been my observation in um, my time as, at City Hall is I think that uh, there could be some um, uh, just some changes in terms of responsiveness on certain issues when it comes to um, things that come to us that need a response from the police. Okay, like so, you mean like a local municipal police force would be more responsive and respond quicker? Uh, well, it might not. In some ways, if there's a directive given, uh, then that would be responded to better in terms of when something's noticed in a city that's changing very quickly and we need to get a response quickly that sometimes um, we could get a bit of a different response if we had our own municipal force. I see. Okay, well, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've heard from people in White Rock that they like having their local RCMP detachment, and I've heard that even the policy in White Rock is 
no call too small that if you have a break in at your home you can expect the rcmp to respond in white rock but maybe you wouldn't in in surrey where they got more crime so i'm just wondering why anyone would in white rock would want to give that up mm-hmm. um well i don't know i mean in that case if if i i haven't been talking to the white rock residents about that um so i don't have an answer oh. for that but uh I mean, if that's true, then sure. I, I would assume that when we have our municipal force, we're going to be implementing things like that. So I don't see how it would be a big issue. Okay, well, I think it would be a big issue. How do you think this would be accomplished, like an amalgamation between Surrey and White Rock? Do you think that would require, like, a referendum in the two cities to, to make it happen? Right. I think that it would. Uh, the, main, the main thrust would come from the citizens, the local citizens, so the White Rock citizens. I think that's where the thrust would come from. So, and it and it involves the province because the province, um, you know, ha- has the ability to do that. Okay. All right. Well, it's an interesting idea. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I look forward to seeing where you go with it. Thanks for coming on to talk about it. Okay. Thank you very much. I hope you have a great day. Okay. Thank you. That is Surrey City Councilor Allison Patton talking about her idea to amalgamate. Surrey and White Rock, which I think has got a chance of happening of about 0%.